Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is producer Lan Lee, welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast, that's Blue the Color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on PierceSalguero.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to The Blue Barrel, a podcast about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and medical humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. When I was thinking about starting off this podcast with a season focused on Buddhist medicine, I could think of nobody better to invite than my longtime friend, William McGrath from New York University. He and I have been involved in a conversation over many years about the intersections between Buddhism and medicine. He's one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on this subject, specifically when it comes to Tibet. In this episode, Bill and I get deep into the weeds in an academic conversation about traditional Tibetan medicine, the category of Buddhist medicine, Bill's latest book, and also the time that we ran out of gas driving home from a conference. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, Bill, welcome. Thanks for being the inaugural guest on my podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Pierce. I'm happy to be here. So the first season of this podcast, I'm intending to focus on Buddhist medicine and have on a number of different scholars and practitioners who are all interested in this area, practicing in this area, studying this area. And I just thought that you were the perfect guest to have on first. And uh, partially that's because you and I are friends and we go back a ways. So I won't be so nervous having you on as my first guest. But the, the other piece was um, you and I have been geeking out about this subject, debating this subject, having different opinions and conversations over many years on this subject. And so I just thought who better to have on to kick off a season about Buddhist medicine than Bill McGrath. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. Maybe we could just start out by having you introduce yourself, where you work, what you do these days. 
Sure, sure. So I'm the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Assistant Professor of Buddhist Studies at New York University. I just finished my first year at NYU and I'm beginning my second, actually as of yesterday. I focus on Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan medicine, and their relationships throughout history. I also use Chinese language sources in my research, and I mostly approach from a historical perspective. One of the things that I was curious about is why did you start focusing on Buddhism? I think I remember you had a, have a family connection with Buddhism, but anyway, can you share with our audience how you got into Buddhism, how this became your path in life? For sure. Yeah. And it's a great place to start. My parents studied Buddhism with Bob Thurman at Amherst College back in the 70s. So my, my mom was one of the first women to go to school there. And my dad, he grew up Catholic, so religion was an important part of his life. And then he had kind of his own thoughts and wanted to reimagine religion for himself. And Bob Thurman, so charismatic and so knowledgeable, he had just come back from living in India as a monk. And he, I'm sure, just totally blew them away. So when I was a child, Buddhism was always sort of in the background. We had Buddhist statues and pictures of Buddhas throughout my house. And I never, I don't know, I never really thought of it as anything special or out of the ordinary. I, maybe once I got a little bit older, I started to realize not many of my friends had anything to do with Buddhism. But it, it was to Buddhism that I turned when I was in high school having existential crises about who I am and what I'm going to do with my life. And so I read books by the Dalai Lama, by Robert Thurman. I found them very inspiring, and I really just got deeper and deeper. I went to the University of Virginia as an undergrad, and there was a Buddhist studies program there. I wish I could say that was on purpose, but I just happened to live in Virginia, and, you know, so I, so I ended up there. And I took a course with Jeffrey Hopkins, who obviously is also a very charismatic and very important figure in the history of Buddhism, in the United States at least. And I decided to start learning Tibetan at a, at a young age. I, I started learning Tibetan when I was 19. I went to Tibet when I was 20. It was the, the UVA Columbia program at Tibet University. And even at that time, I was already thinking about medicine. I wanted to be a doctor. I was a chemistry major. And these were the two, what felt like distinct and separate parts of my life was chemistry, science, medicine, and then Buddhism and spirituality and my other pursuits on the other side. And it really wasn't until graduate school that I was able to bring them back together. And, you know, I could go on and on. But basically going to Tibet and having these experiences, learning the language, it just totally transformed my life. And all I wanted to do was go back and spend more time and learn more. I'm a very fortunate person to be able to have these opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of that interest initially was maybe more oriented towards being a practitioner of Buddhism. And then you also started cultivating a more academic approach to, to Buddhism. And I'm wondering if that was a tension for you or was there a particular moment where there was a fork in the road where you decided to go one way or the other, or do you still combine both a practitioner and a scholarly approach to Buddhism? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? And my students often ask me the same question. They say, hey, you teach Buddhism, but do you practice it? In my mind, scholarship really is practice or can be practiced, right? It doesn't have to be, of course, but I'm the professor of Buddhist studies. My life is to teach about Buddhism, to share Buddhist ideas, to 
digest this really difficult field and represent it in an understandable form for, I hope, for the rest of my life, right? For generations of students. I'd certainly see my professional life as intertwined with my larger pursuits, my more personal pursuits. Um, now, in a very practical sense, I am not a doctor. I don't know how to use acupuncture needles. I don't know how to prescribe medicines. And so I defer to the, to the experts on those such things. But in terms of Buddhist practice, I really do see my life of scholarship as a Buddhist practice. I don't think those have to be separate. So I'm just curious because in, in Tibetan circles, so I just, so that everybody knows, I, I know very little about Tibetan Buddhism, which is one of the reasons why I've learned so much from you over the years, but you know, within Tibetan Buddhist circles, there's a lot of concern about lineages and certain levels of empowerments and so on and so forth. And I, I'm wondering if there's anything that you want to share with our audience, just in terms of like where your influences lie or where your previous experience has taken you in those more traditional Buddhist terms. Yeah, that's so that's also a great question. And I'm sure many of my colleagues have much more interesting stories than I do about their lamas who sort of have guided them along the path. As I, I've actually already mentioned, some of my most important teachers are my parents, Bob Thurman, Jeffrey Hopkins. I, I should certainly not leave out David Germano. He's been a very important teacher for me. And Curtis Schaefer. So David and Curtis were both my dissertation advisors at the University of Virginia. Now, that being said, I don't do guru yoga for David Germano. <laughs> Maybe somebody somewhere does. But I, I think if I had to say one Tibetan Buddhist teacher, it would be Kempel Ngong Dorje, who also lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, I met him when I was also quite young, maybe 22 or so. I just graduated from... Actually, no, he taught my Tibetan class. That's how I think I first met him. So I probably wasn't even 21 yet at that time. And he came to Charlottesville. He didn't have a car and I did. And so I would take him to the grocery store and we would hang out and make tukba, which is Tibetan noodles. And at the time, you know, again, I was just a kid. I wasn't thinking like these are really important lessons that Kemba was showing me, but he showed me how to take care of myself. He showed me how to make food, right? I made tukba today. I, I don't make tukba every day, but we, my wife and I made it for lunch, right? It, it's one of the few dishes that it's sort of complicated. You hand make the noodles and put it all together into a pot. And Kempo showed me how to do that. And it's something I will forever be grateful to him. And it's not to say that, um, that this is, again, totally separate from a, a spiritual activity. But Kembo's teachings for me were actually very practical in many ways. And then we would also discuss Tibetan culture, Tibetan history, Tibetan philosophy. He's a Jonangba, so he represents a relatively, let's say, smaller tradition, minority tradition within Tibetan Buddhism. So I, I learned a ton from him. And I, I've had other teachers that I haven't been so close with. But I think if I had to give my lineage, I think Kempel Nolan Dorje would be the one I would point to. I'm definitely coming over for lunch, by the way. But uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for, yeah, for entertaining that kind of question. It's, it's a kind of question that I think a lot of times academics are reluctant to talk about their personal involvements with the traditions that we study. So I appreciate your, your openness and sharing with that. Mm -hmm. so, thank you. Um, so as you know, Beryl, the gemstone is very closely associated with the medicine Buddha by Shajaguru. And so his full name means something like he who has the radiance of beryl 
of the most important medicine. That's according to Gregory Chopin's translation. And this barrel is often presumed to be a deep aquamarine color. And in um, Tibetan iconography, Guru is normally depicted as having this deep blue skin. So for me, naming the podcast Blue Barrel was a reference and a nod to Guru. But this term also has other meanings in Tibetan tradition. And I uh, was wondering if you could say a little bit about Blue Barrel in uh, Tibet. Barrel is everywhere. And Blue Barrel is the name of the Desi Sangha Gyatso's commentary on the four tantras. I know this is a little esoteric, but um, that's that's the name of a very important medical commentary in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, and there's also an accompanying set of Tibetan tanka paintings that depict various aspects of the medical tradition that were produced at the same time. And uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with those images. They're quite beautiful and quite informative illustrations of the medical tradition. Uh, we actually used a detail of one of those images in the logo for this podcast, if you zoom in and look really closely. But anyway, this is a commentary on the four tantras. Can you tell us a little bit more about that really foundational text? I would be happy to. Um... So the four tantras is often attributed to Yudo Yundengumbo, who for most intents and purposes is the most famous founding figure of Tibetan medicine, almost like a, a Galen of Tibetan medicine. He, he didn't come up with everything. He's not quite the Hippocrates, although I've made that comparison before too. Um, but he, he really systematizes it. And the, the four tantras is the work that does this. It's written in a rather opaque fashion, as with most scriptures. It's attributed to the teachings of the Buddha, and so it, it really is a Buddhist scripture. And as a result, these commentaries are necessary, and throughout the ages, different doctors have written commentaries, and so that is uh, hence, hence the Blue Barrel commentary. And so Tibetan doctors, even today, they memorize the four tantras. It's a central part of training in Tibetan medicine. And so it continues even, let's say, seven, eight hundred years after its composition. It continues to be a very important medical text even now. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us what Soa Rigpa is or the tradition of Tibetan medicine? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it's actually something of a contested term. As far as pharmaceutical sales go, China is by far the most, let's say the largest market for Soarikpa and Soarikpa medicines. But Tibetan medicine is also popular in South Asia. It's also popular in Mongolia and really throughout the world now. So in, in the United States and Europe, all over the world, people are taking Tibetan medicine. But this term that you asked me about a second ago, Swarigpa, is not obviously Tibetan. It's in the Tibetan language, but it really is the translation of an Indian word, which again speaks to its more, let's say, cosmopolitan origins. It's a Tibetan translation of Chikitisa Vidya, which is one of the five fields of knowledge, the Pancha Vidya. These were developed in India and then brought to Tibet as part of a larger Buddhist scholasticism. And medicine was one of these five pursuits that a bodhisattva had to master in order to achieve omniscience and become a, a, a pandita, an expert of these five fields. Um, so in any case, 
Swati, so, but is this Tibetan translation of a Sanskrit term for medicine in general? Uh, it, people translate it as the science of healing or the knowledge of healing, a field of healing. In any case, it, it's become a very popular term to refer to Tibetan medicine using a, a more kind of cosmopolitan term. Yeah. And when you say cosmopolitan, you're referring to the origins of this tradition, not only in the Indian Sanskrit texts, but also it doesn't it borrow a lot of techniques and knowledge from China and even from the Middle East and from other parts of, of Eurasia? Yeah, it's a great point. And it's one way that people describe Tibetan medicine, just looking at it geographically, it's in an interesting space, Tibet. It's, it's in these overlapping spheres of East Asia, South Asia. And as a result, there's a long history of interaction with Turks and even Persian and Arab and Greek medicine as well. Um, Christopher Beckwith wrote an article in 1979 about Greek medicine in Tibet. And indeed, there is some evidence of, of exchange there. So is Tibetan medicine just this sort of amalgamation of these three different traditions together? In fact, it, it presents itself as such in, in some histories of medicine in Tibet. But I, I would argue that it's a bit more complicated than that. And it, in fact, one of the great contributions that Tibetans make to this cosmopolitan medical tradition is the very explicit marriage of Buddhism and medicine together, right? To really frame it as the teachings of Buddha with these ethical concerns, with these soteriological concerns, it is, I would argue, a relatively unique development that happens in Tibet and happens through the central scripture of the four tantras. Yeah, I wanted to mention my friend uh, Ronit Yoeli Talalim, who just wrote a book, came out earlier this year, called Reorienting Histories of Medicine, which talks about a lot of these kind of cross-cultural exchanges around Eurasia and Central Asia being sort of like a transit point and a collection point for knowledge coming from Persia and from China and from India and, and, and elsewhere around the area. Um, and she she writes about Galen or Galenic Western medicine in Tibet as well. So it's a really fascinating part of the world with a really rich and diverse medical tradition. So I know there's this famous image from Tibet about medicine being like a tree and then there's all these branches coming off of it. Can you talk a little bit about what the various branches of Tibetan medicine are? Yeah, so those are the second and third and fourth paintings in the set that was created by Desasanja Jemso. And they effectively map out the diagnostic and therapeutic methods for Tibetan medicine. So if somebody is sick and I'm a Tibetan physician, then I will take their pulse as a very common way also check urine, have a conversation, ask some questions. There are other, we could say empirical checks. You could look at somebody's tongue or look at their skin, right? There are many different ways, but the most celebrated methods for diagnosis are, are what we could call pulse diagnosis and urinalysis, urine diagnosis. And so those are outlined in these trees and the main diagnostic categories are the humors or they're called the nyepa, the nyepa sum, the three Really, I, I, I call them humors uh, for, let's say, scholastic reasons that I can get into another time. But wind, bile, and phlegm, lung, chiba, bacon. And so that's one 
version of these trees is there's kind of a, a trunk that goes in the wind category. There's a trunk that goes in the bile category. There's a trunk that goes in the phlegm category. And then within those, there are various kind of sub ailments that might be further categorized. Now, in, in terms of treatment, treatments are usually organized according to diet and behavior. Um, then it can get into herbal concoctions with minerals and, and animal parts sometimes, and then also surgeries, which could be something as mild as like moxibustion. Although in historical context, that might have been a li little more a little more hot and painful than the way people do it now. Um, or bathing is also kind of a mild external therapy. But then there really are pretty serious surgeries, right? People have had various injuries or infections or for whatever reason, right? Go to see a physician, they might need to do some pretty serious interventions. And Tibetan medicine covers all of these. Um, now, Tibetan medicine is really most popular for its herbal pills. And so there are companies that specialize in their production. People like my own parents take these pills. There's something called a precious pill which has kind of an, let's say, an esoteric history where it's very much tied in with Buddhist rituals and some of the details have kind of been lost over time. Barbara Gurkha has written about this as well as Olaf Chaya. It's a pretty well-studied phenomenon, actually, precious pills. I think there was a, a whole grant project dedicated to it. They're, they're very popular now. One kind of controversial piece is that they include mercury, mercuric compounds. Um, and the idea is that this mercury has been tamed, which means it's been put in a compound usually with sulfur and therefore it becomes insoluble in the body. But nonetheless, this is still introducing mercury into the digestive system. And this is sort of raising a flag with various regulation groups. And, and so in any case, Tibetan medicine as, as you can tell from this sort of brief overview, has many different details in terms of diagnostics and treatment. And to be a trained physician, which I am not, but to be a trained physician, you have to really memorize from a sort of scholastic side all of these different instructions and then put them into practice, right? And to develop your own personal, pragmatic understanding of, of how to utilize these instructions. Yeah, great. I just wanted to mention the name of Barbara's book, Taming the Poisonous, Mercury, Toxicity, and Safety in Tibetan Medical Practice. And it's actually available open access. Right? You can just Google it up and, and download a copy of that. So when it comes to making of precious pills, obviously, the as you were mentioning, the rituals are very much a part of the production of the pills. And I'm just wondering where ritual fits in with the, the other branches that you were discussing. Is, is ritual its own branch of intervention or would, you know, the herbalist or the surgeon or other, other specialists that you were talking about be doing rituals as part of those interventions? So... Within the four tantras itself, right, within this central scripture of the Tibetan medical tradition, there are instructions for what we might call rituals, although they are generally not included in these branches. I, I will admit that I have not memorized every leaf of these branches, so I can't tell you all of what is and is not included. But if you look at the whole of the four tantras, you will find that a very small percentage is dedicated to ritual explicitly. Um, and this is something I've looked into with a bit more detail. It really parallels developments in Ayurveda. There are different branches of Ayurveda. 
One branch of Ayurveda is dedicated to demonology. I think it's Buddha Vidya. So the Buddha are in Tibetan called the Jua, which I, I translate as elemental spirit, right? Some kind of spirit that causes disease. And so this is just a separate field of knowledge. And usually when you're dealing with some kind of being that is causing your illness, then you need to do some sort of ritual intervention to interact with that being and get them to stop causing the illness. It's honestly kind of logical. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but in any case, yeah, this is where you see more of the, the ritual more of the spells, more of the divination is, is when dealing with these spirit-caused illnesses. Thanks. And um, so I'm also curious about the role of, of empowerments within the practice. I mean, individual practitioners or, or doctors, do they have to go through some kind of spiritual initiation in addition to their medical training? Do they acquire certain kinds of blessings or empowerment so that they're able to perform their job of healing better. I'm just curious about that. It's part of my experience in Thailand was seeing a lot of these kinds of practitioner empowerment rituals. And I'm wondering what the, what the tradition is in Tibet. It's a great question. And I, I guess first I'll say you should invite some anthropologists on this podcast in future episodes. Just very generally speaking, it, it's really, it's an institutional question. In terms of the Mensikong, which is now probably the most famous Tibetan medical institution, it was established in Tibet in 1916, I want to say. It had the 100-year anniversary recently. And it, the Mensikong developed kind of as this move toward modernity in, in Tibet. Um, the precursor was an overtly monastic institution, Chakpori where to be a student there, you had to be a monk. The teachers were monks, the students were monks, everybody was men as far as I know. And, and so it was basically a monastic college that taught about medicine. This was established way back in the 17th century with the Desi Sanji Jemso, who is so important for Tibetan medical history. But going to the Mansikong, it was open to lay people. And in fact, now many women have graduated from the Mansikong. There's a Mansikong in Lhasa Day, and there's a Mansikong in Dharamsala as well. And it's just opened up Tibetan medical practice to, let's say, a, a broader spectrum of people. So anyways, coming back to your initial question about the role of ritual, empowerment, lineage, um, the Mansikong, as I said, a somewhat modern institution, the role of blessings and so forth has generally, at least in Lhasa, disappeared for the most part. It, it's not totally gone. There are still these practices called mendrup rituals, medical accomplishment, medical attainment is kind of a direct translation, but they're basically blessing rituals that are performed usually after pills have been made or in the process of making pills. But there are many studies about GMP, good manufacturing process, and how blessings are not a part of GMP requirements. And so there's some conflict between these two things. But that being said, in, in a more traditional setting, these mendrup rituals would be more central and would perhaps be performed by the physicians themselves or maybe even by another lama who's, who is more kind of charismatic. And huge rituals and festivals are performed around these empowerment-type practices. And so th there's almost a... A question of what is the relationship between the ingredients of the pills? Is that what is providing the efficacy? Or is it 
almost like a vessel for the blessing that come from the Lama. And I think depending on the context, you might get slightly different answers to that question. But it's all just to say, yes, absolutely. There are these empowerment rituals in more traditional education circles. I have no doubt that there would be tantric initiations and commitments that were kept between teachers and students. But there also has been this development of what we could call a more secularized or more modernized tradition of of Tibetan medicine that's really been flourishing in China today. Fascinating. Thank you. So why don't we shift gears and start in on the main question? The one question that I wanted to pose to you, Bill, the whole reason for having you on this podcast mm -hmm. uh, to start us off this season, I want to ask you, what is Buddhist medicine? And I kind of am asking you a loaded question that I have a lot of opinions about, and that's a topic that you and I have discussed for many years. And so I wanted to riff on that a little bit with you here on the podcast. This term Buddhist medicine that we've already used a few times and will continue to use throughout the rest of the season has a lot of different interpretations, a lot of different usages. And I thought it would be helpful maybe to run through a few of those different definitions. Where I've encountered the term Buddhist medicine would be an English translation of the Chinese phrase for yi or for jiao yi xue also used in Japan. And in doing a little bit of research on the origins of that term was really only able to, in, in that context, in those languages, trace it back to somewhere around the early 20th century, where it was created as a term to refer to the kinds of medical ideas and information that were introduced to East Asia in Buddhist texts. In that context, that term is referring to a particular stream or tradition or type of medical practice that was very closely allied with Buddhism and that came from outside of East Asia. And I, I'm curious, is there a similar term that you would find in Tibetan that sort of refers to specific lineage or specific tradition of Buddhist healing with origin in the scriptures? Yeah, sure. So this is a point that Janet Gyatso makes in her review of your 2014 book, is that the word Buddhist medicine really is a 20th century development. In Tibetan traditions, I haven't seen Nangbaymen used outside of Bhutan. So this word Nangbaymen, Nangba, means insider, and it's, it's a common term used for Buddhists. Actually, it derives, I believe, from the five fields of knowledge. But, but the term for Buddhist philosophy in the, these five fields is Nangbe Demba. I believe that's what it is. And so that term Nangba, it, it's used to refer to kind of a Buddhist philosophy. And then I think it gets applied to medicine, specifically in Bhutan, quite a bit later. But even in Tibet now, the term Nangbe Men is not widely used as far as I know. And so, yeah, this idea of Buddhist medicine, it, it's a bit of a heuristic device, a second order category, at, at least as far as the term goes. Yeah. So I, I make the argument in my global history of Buddhism and medicine that this term is a term of convenience that we can use in, in the present day in order to carve out a field of things to study, making the analogy to the term Buddhist art, where it's a, like you said, a second order term that points to a longstanding tradition of centuries or millennia of cultural production that may or may not have necessarily identified in a given time or place um, with that term, but yet it allows us as scholars to see similarities 
across global history and to be able to pull together, say, like a sculpture from the Silk Roads and a brush painting from China and even a contemporary manga about the Buddha, right? And, and draw those three very disparate cultural objects into some kind of conversation for comparative purposes. And so in my book, I'm advocating the use of this term in an extremely broad and wide kind of way to help attune us to certain phenomena or certain practices throughout or ideas throughout history. But you're using the term in, in a different way when you approach your materials and you think about Buddhist medicine in Tibet. Yeah, I, I think this is something you and I discovered maybe three or four years ago. We were talking about Buddhist medicine. And I think you looked over at me and you're like, Bill, I think you have your own idea about Buddhist medicine. And it might be different from mine, which was, all, you know, it's always sort of exciting to come to these realizations. Um, and it took me time to figure out how to articulate this. But to me, Buddhist medicine comes down to three things, origins, ethics, and soteriology. So this idea that a medical teaching originates in the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha himself taught these teachings, or we could say a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, some revered Buddhist figure taught these medical instructions, and then they were transmitted within Buddhist lineage. Ethics, referring to Bodhisattva ethics, particularly in the Mahayana tradition. Uh, but even before Mahayana, there is an ethical quality to the Buddhist practice of medicine. So conforming with Buddhist ethics, right? That That's an, an important piece of the picture. And then soteriology, this I don't think you would find pre-Mahayana, but particularly in Tibetan medicine, there is a sense if you are a, let's say, scrupulous doctor, you don't rip off your patients, you don't lie, um, you will achieve enlightenment. There's a chapter, it's the end of the explanatory tantra, the end of the shigyu, which talks about these ethics of the physician. And it's really quite explicitly laid out. If you do tantric practices about the medicine Buddha, and if you lead an ethical life and practice medicine in a responsible way, you will achieve the highest state of Buddhahood. Oh, that's fascinating. We should talk more about that. So be before we do that, I'm interested in sort of the limits of your of your category here. So for me, just following the example from Buddhist art, one of the limiting test cases that I talk about in the book is let's say that any practitioner of Buddhism is doing graffiti, the content of which and the style of which has nothing to do with Buddhist traditions, but yet they themselves are producing this art and they see that as an expression of their Buddha nature, let's say. In my thinking, that should qualify as Buddhist art. And in the same way, Buddhist monk practicing acupuncture, let's say, which is not of Buddhist origin and comes from mainstream Chinese medicine, but they're practicing that as an expression of their bodhisattva vows, or they're, they're practicing at a Buddhist medical clinic of some sort. Mm -hmm. I, I would treat that in my definition as very much, very integrally a part of Buddhist medicine, because mm -hmm. it's a form of healing that's taking place within a Buddhist social context. But I feel like, like that, that wouldn't satisfy at least one out of three of your criteria. So do we need to satisfy all three of your criteria in order to qualify as Buddhist medicine in your definition? Or, mm -hmm. or is, is, that, is that enough that a monastic practicing acupuncture is doing so as part of their bodhisattva vow and that's enough for it to qualify as Buddhist medicine? Yeah, it's, it's a great example. And I, I haven't 
really explicitly going down this path. So thank you for inviting me here. But I would put it this way. There's a difference between what we might call a historicist approach to the past and what we could call maybe a traditionalist approach to the past. I think I'm borrowing these terms from Sheldon Pollock. When I say origins, I don't necessarily mean historical, right? In the sort of rigid sense of that term as much as an understood origins, right? How traditions present themselves. And in that sense, a surgeon in Manhattan who has taken Bodhisattva vows, um, does the surgery have to truly be invented by the Buddha? Does the Buddha have to, in his omniscience, actually know all of the modern surgical techniques? Well, no, not necessarily. What, what matters is kind of from the perspective of the practitioner, where did they gain this knowledge and this technique, right? And this ability. I, I think it's important to have at least some sense that this is Buddhist knowledge in order for this to be a fully Buddhist practice of, of medicine. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So another question, just exploring the limits of your category here. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, disagreement between Janet Gatso and me on the use of this term Buddhist medicine. And I think one of the main things that we were disagreeing about is that she defines the term medicine differently than I do. So, mm -hmm. so I think she was using that term in a way that sort of implies a certain systematization, a certain kind of empirical epistemology and, and other kinds of criteria in her usage of the term. Whereas for me, I prefer a very expansive notion of medicine. So I include within my definition of Buddhist medicine, all sorts of spell casting and rituals and meditations and exorcisms and empowerments and other kinds of practices that are pushing the boundaries of what we might consider to fall under the category of medicine. Uh, my, my point being just that the terms religion and medicine and the boundary between them are products of a modern Anglo-European culture and that these, these divisions uh, may or may not apply in other cultures. And rather than us imposing our categories onto the past, I'm more interested in asking the question of whether or not in certain times and places they had a distinction between, you know, magic and religion and medicine and these other terms that we take for granted in English. So my, my choice in my work is to use a very broad definition of medicine and also a broad definition of Buddhist medicine. So I'm wondering how you feel about things like exorcisms and spell casting and so forth. It's a great question. And it, it shows that this idea of Buddhist medicine is really opening up a can of worms in terms of our usual comfortable categories. 
I'm teaching a course on theories and methods in religious studies this semester, which I've never taught before. I've, I've taught things sort of like this, but this is really 100% theory. And uh, one thing this has forced me to do is to return to some classics like Frazier and E.B. Tyler and these, these figures from 100 years ago, Victorian anthropology. Uh, and really, this kind of neat and tidy separation of religion from science is expressed quite clearly in those works. And they add a third category, which is magic, which you, you brought up a second ago. But this idea of Buddhist medicine really does raise this question of, can we talk about a medicine that maybe overlaps science and religion? Can we blur those categories? Are we allowed to do that? Janet Gautzo's book does not want to do that, right? And I, I admire this book for many reasons. It, it's very thoroughly researched and clearly argued. And I admire the argument as well. It's saying that Tibetans could be scientists. Tibetans could do science. They could look at the world. They could observe all the things around them. And they could formulate theories and instructions based on those observations, right? This idea of the medical mentality is maybe one of the major arguments made here is that Tibetans had this medical mentality. Now, the danger, of course, is to make these rigid lines like the Victorian anthropologists wanted to do and say that is all that Tibetan doctors were doing. Because, of course, it was not, right? It was not all that Tibetan doctors were doing. They were doing the exorcisms. They were doing the divinations. And in fact, perhaps we'll get to this more a bit later, but I, I edited a book in 2019, and my chapter in that book is about tantric divination and empirical diagnosis. So in any case, yes, I, I'm with you on the lumping. We don't have to split magic from religion, from science, like James Frazier did. I, I think Mary Douglas said uh, he sent us down a blind alley in doing so, and I, I tend to agree with her on that one. You know, she said that like 50 years ago. So if, if we're still heading down that blind alley with magic as separate from religion or, or even science as separate from religion, we're not doing anybody a favor, particularly students of religious studies. Um, so yes, yeah, I think they deserve to be put together. Yeah, thanks for that, Bill. So to me, your position seems to be striking out a middle ground between my more capacious category and Janet's more limited definition of Buddhist medicine. And I should say for our listeners who aren't necessarily avid followers of Buddhist medicine studies, that what we are talking about is Janet Gyatso's book, Being Human in a Buddhist World, an Intellectual History of Medicine in Early Modern Tibet, which was published in 2017. It's a beautiful book full of color illustrations that reproduce a lot of medical diagrams and other sorts of artworks from the Blue Barrel Tonka paintings. And it's a really fascinating study of the negotiations of the kinds of categories and boundaries that we've been talking about here, which also were taking place in Tibet. What is Buddhism? What is medicine? What is Tantra? And she does a great job of introducing those debates. And also, I think it's worth mentioning that by any of these three definitions of Buddhist medicine that we've been talking about, so Rigpa or Tibetan medicine certainly would qualify. Yeah. Let's pivot to talking about your book, Bill, which you've already introduced. So that book is Knowledge and Context in Tibetan Medicine, right? Mm -hmm. published by Brill in 2019. It's an edited volume with contributions from a number of different scholars. And why don't you tell us what was the purpose in putting it together? What were, what were the main arguments that you were trying to get across in the book? 
Yeah, sure. Thank you, Pierce. So knowledge and context in Tibetan medicine, a friend of mine wrote a review of the book saying it's not going to win a prize for its title, <laughs> which I thought was a hilarious way of putting it. The way this book came together is um, so at the IATS meeting in Bergen in 2016, I was a graduate student at the time and wanted to assemble this massive panel on Tibetan medicine. So I just emailed everybody I could think of. And there were, I think, two or maybe even three separate sessions. It was just Tibetan medicine all day. It was amazing. It was a, a dream come true for me. And afterward, I approached all the participants and asked them if they'd like to put this volume together. One reason we needed a volume like this, there, there was a similar such volume that had come out, I think about 2007 or so. And there have been several other edited volumes on Tibetan medicine. But during this time, there's just been a deluge of materials on Tibetan medicine. There's so much coming out. And so knowledge and context in Tibetan medicine is really, it's trying to find a way to tie historical approaches, anthropological approaches together in, in the study of Tibetan medicine. So I, I think it's a great book. I, I think it's an important book. But I wanted to circle back to what you were saying about your chapter in particular. And, and, and I'm interested, maybe you can tell us a little bit about these intersections between tantric ritual and medical practice. Absolutely. I guess it all goes back to, let's say, 2015 or so. There was this new collection of manuscripts facsimiles that had just been published. It was a 30-volume collection. It's this incredible resource for studying the history of Tibetan medicine. These are, are manuscripts that no one had seen. I think they were kept in the Potala, or at least that's what the title of the collection said. And so just these new hun hundreds of manuscripts at your fingertips. And my advisor, Curtis Schaefer, arranged for the UVA library to purchase a set. And I was a graduate student who could go read them. But in any case, one one text had the title, which I could not understand when I saw this. I showed it to Curtis. I was like, hey, Curtis, I understand this. It means channel palpation or pulse diagnosis. But this word, what is and he's like, I've never seen that word before. I don't know. And this was the beginning of, of a search. What is this talking about? What is this text doing? Um, and I looked into it, if, if you write it out in Wiley transliteration, it's P-R-A, pra. And if you go into the Tibetan canons, you can find this term in various tantric texts. So one is what I call the, the questions of Subahu, the Subahu Paripricha. So this word pra is often paired with sena, prasena. And then I found some articles, Giacomello Orfino wrote one in the, I believe in the 90s. So pretty early on, people knew about this prasena ritual. Fred Smith's book, The Self-Possessed, has some Sanskrit genealogy of, of the term prasena. And that's really what my project turned into too, was this genealogy of the idea of prasena. How did it become integrated into these channel diagnosis practices? Um, and it took me on a pretty wild journey. I, I looked for prasana in really early Tibetan texts. There's this book of spells that Sam Ben Shkaik translated in his recent book. It shows up there. So that's quite early on. It shows up in Chinese sources, Bosana, 
Michel Strickman talks about Boisana and his Chinese magical medicine. So it's, it's not limited to just South and Central Eurasia. It's really all over the place. And one connection I eventually made, it's, it's much like a, a magic mirror. So this idea of scrying the mirror, where you look into a reflective surface and deities can communicate with you throughout the process of this. Um, so that's one, one element of prasana. So anyways, uh, long story short, it eventually gets tied to channel. I call it channel examination. It's a little more literal, but it's pulse diagnosis. Um, but in any case, you palpate the pulses, you palpate these channels, and in doing so are able to make predictions about the health of the patient who is with you, if you're the physician, or even about other patients. Like if I'm I'm too sick. I could send my brother to go to the doctor and say, hey, go see if I'm going to get better or not, right? And so you can imagine this is a very useful sort of practice. It's a, a, a practical sort of practice. And so this prasana divination ritual becomes intimately tied with channel examination and pulse diagnosis within the Tibetan tradition. Cool. So Bill, I, I know you're a scholar and not a healer, but have you tried to divine your own health or, or somebody else's health? I've not ever done prasana, but I, I did talk to some of my friends about this. Kembal Ngong Dorje, who I mentioned, I asked him about prasana and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, people still do this. And if again, if you look for it, it's everywhere. Uh, so when the 13th Dalai Lama passed away, they're trying to find the 14th Dalai Lama. Rajang Rinpoche went to a special lake and looked out on the surface of the lake and did this very divination and saw signs and sent people to Amdo to go look for the next Dalai Lama. It was the same divination practice, prasana. Kempo even said when they were inviting his teacher from Tibet to the United States, they did this divination to see if you get his visa. And they had, Kempo said he himself couldn't do it. You learn whether you can do it or not at a young age. And just some people can and some people can't. But he knew someone who could. They were doing this divination practice. The person had a dream and they saw a mountain in the dream. And they thought, okay, mountains are good, right? It's not a negative symbol, at least. But he, then the teacher didn't get the visa. And so they were upset. And then Kempo said, oh, we misinterpreted the sign. Mountains don't move. Mountains are immobile, right? And so it meant that he was going to stay and he wasn't going to come. But then they tried again. They did the divination again. The specialist had a dream again. But the dream this time was a horse. And then they thought, okay, surely he's going to get it this time. And he did, right? Because horses are, are more mobile. So an interesting piece of this is you get these signs that you then have to interpret. And, and part of the process is to interpret them properly. Yeah, I love that story. So Bill, a while back in our conversation, you mentioned that it's part of the Tibetan medical tradition that the practice of medicine actually leads to Buddhahood. And I'm wondering if you could maybe say more about that. I'm really intrigued by this idea. Yeah, absolutely. So one one thing maybe I'll say first is I've been going through your book and with my my students, and we've been talking about the differences between the three vehicles. So this is all very fresh in my mind. And as I'm sure some of our listeners know, in early Buddhism, there's this conflict where medicine is this worldly practice. And if I'm a monk or somebody's a nun and we want to pursue otherworldly goals, then it perhaps is a conflict of interest there. So you see prohibitions to practice medicine and things like divinia. From there, we might have a a compassionate motivation. We might want to achieve some form of omniscience. And so 
medicine becomes a part of the Mahayana tradition. And then finally, you get to Tantra. And I, I believe you even write in the book that worldly and otherworldly goals become two sides of the same coin, which I think is a really nice way to phrase it. And we see that in the practice of medicine. So in the four tantras, there's one chapter in particular, which focuses on the physician. It's called Soabo Memba. It's the, 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 the final chapter of the second tantra in the four tantras. And so in this chapter, there's basically an outline for practice about how to proceed along, beginning with the Mahayana path of the Bodhisattva to develop this compassionate motivation to practice medicine. And then finally, if somebody continues this compassionate motivation, there's a promise toward the end of attaining the ground of unsurpassed Buddhahood. So there's there's this very explicit passage that explains building on the rest of this chapter that through an ethical practice of medicine, one can achieve Buddhahood. Yeah. So is that coming just from the compassion that you generate through the practice of medicine where you're, you know, engaging with your patients in a way to try to alleviate their suffering and just the cumulative effect of all of that karmic merit or all of that cultivation of compassion that leads towards Buddhahood? Or is there, are there other kinds of dynamics at play? It, I mean, I, I'm assuming that there's also um, other kinds of rituals that are making one's intention to become a Buddha part of the practice? Or is this is this strictly from the cultivation of compassion? Yeah, so compassion is an important part of the practice. Like I said, the chapter begins with this idea of cultivating bodhicitta, this mind of enlightenment, this motivation to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. And then that that type of motivation is compared with kind of more, we could say, selfish goals. This this language of humanistic duty, Michu, which I believe Janet Gyatso explores in her book. And these are contrasted. So there's the more sort of selfish approach to medicine, we might call a worldly approach. And to be clear, the Four Tantras is embracing this type of medical practice. Not everybody has to be a bodhisattva, but if you are a bodhisattva, then you can achieve this ultimate goal. And one thing that separates what I would call this tantric approach from a Mahayana approach is exactly what you said. It is this set of practices dedicated to the medicine Buddha. Again, in this very same chapter that I've been discussing, there's an pretty detailed instructions for performing deity yoga, which would be this evocation of, they use the full name here, um, the king of, of barrel light by Ojibwe, and imagining yourself as this medicine Buddha. And so effectively, there becomes a tantric aspect to this practice as well, where it's not only compassionate, but one could even see patients as the medicine Buddha in the flesh. Mm, yeah, interesting. So can you can you help to clarify the difference between what you're talking about right now, and then the set of practices that is that has a name that I'm going to mispronounce and you correct my pronunciation too, but you talk nimtik. Can you can you kind of maybe compare those those two or the or contrast those two systems for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Yudong Ningting has become very popular in recent years. I think it's due in part to Dr. Nida Chenak-sang, who's really popularized Yudong Ningting. And he and uh, his students and his colleagues have really promoted this tantric form of medical practice, and we could say religious practice too, under the banner of the Yudong Ningting. From a scholarly perspective, we could say it's kind of part of the same cycle as the Four Tantras. The Four Tantras is usually attributed to Yuto Yudengumbo. The name Yuto Idn Yuto Ningtik refers to the same figure. So certainly in terms of identity, these would be coming from the same, the same world. And I, the way I think about Yuto Ningtik is it's, it's kind of a set of ritual practices that developed over about the year 1000 to about 1400 or 1500. It's relatively late as a, a set collection. So for example, we discuss prasana in this interview and instructions for those kinds of ritual divination practices. You can find them peripherally in the four tantras, but they're really quite central in something like the Yuto Ningtik. So is it fair to say that the four tantras are sort of like the foundation on which various different currents of practice were established and that Yutok Ningtik is one of those currents that builds on it and moves forward? And then if so, are there are there other currents that are still being practiced today other than Yutok Ningtik that would be also grounded in the four tantras as a comprehensive path to Buddhahood through being a healer? Yes. And so that's actually where I came up with this dating for the Yutok Ningtik. It's not considering how popular it is, it's not particularly well studied, honestly, kind of the, the, the history of the Yuto Ningtik is still waiting to be written. But in my dissertation, I discuss another family called the Zhangti family, who, as you very nicely stated, developed yet another set of instructions, another current that builds off of and together with the four tantras. And so that that collection is called the Mengak Serdema and Ngudrema. I think I call it like the collection of silver, collection of gold. So the, these instructions that develop in addition to the four tantras. And then this continues down to the present day where physicians maybe are not composing ritual instructions that are attached to the four tantras, but they'll compose maybe a, a more scholastic commentary where some of the topics that are only briefly mentioned in the four tantras can then be fully developed in these commentarial works. So there's a whole body of what we might call exegesis or addenda, which have been added to the four tantras over the, the past many centuries. Yeah, fascinating. So earlier you were talking about the contemporary practice of Swarigpa in places around the Himalayas and also around the world. And I'm, I'm wondering if today the landscape of healers is, can we see it being carved up into different schools based on these traditions? Or I guess more broadly, how realistic is the goal of Buddhahood through the practice of medicine for modern day practitioners? I'm probably not the one to really, <laughs> to really definitively answer that question, but it's an interesting one, right? Because we have these instructions from many hundreds of years ago. And I think your question really gets at, at a key question for the modern practice of, of what we could call Buddhist medicine. How Buddhist is Buddhist medicine now? Or what used to maybe be more Buddhist? Has it become less Buddhist somehow? Uh, I, I think figures like Dr. Nita that I mentioned a moment ago would say Buddhist medicine now is still very Buddhist. The way he teaches it, and again, his colleagues and his students, I think would most certainly say medicine can be a part 
of a larger spiritual path and that the practice of medicine itself can be an expression of that spiritual path. Uh, there are other institutions, the Mensikong comes to mind, particularly the Mensikong in Lhasa. It, it's sort of the opposite. There, there have been some studies, Martin Saxer has a book about good manufacturing practices as they're done in China and other parts of the, the Tibetan world. And there's really not this emphasis on soteriology, on Buddhahood. It's more, can we make an industrialized version of Tibetan medicine, which can then be integrated into the capitalistic market systems of pharmaceutical exchange that currently exist? And so, for example, the Radamed project that was based at the University of Vienna has explored kind of the economics. And I believe the, the number they came up with was pretty startling. It's Tibetan medicine now is something like a billion dollar industry. And so it has succeeded because of these, this shift in emphasis on the production of physical materials without as much concern about spirituality. Yeah. Um, so you were just talking about, I just want to mention the full name of Martin Saxer's book, which is Manufacturing Tibetan Medicine the creation of an industry and the moral economy of Tibetanness. And then the Radimed project, that's uh, R-A-T-I-M-E-D. Yeah, and that's Reassembling Tibetan Medicine is the full title. Great. Yeah, I was uh, astonished by that statistic as well of a billion dollars. Thank, thank you for mentioning those. And I, of course, it, it, it occurs to me that it would be likely that the practice of Tibetan medicine would be a whole lot less Buddhist within the boundaries of the People's Republic of China, where traditional medicine and and other kinds of aspects of Tibetan culture were uh, actively suppressed in in Tibet and surrounding areas. And so, I, I guess you're also pointing us towards the pressures of globalization and the hegemony of biomedicine globally, and the efforts for Saul Rigpa to reconstruct itself in a way that's going to be both marketable and also perceived as being legitimate on the global scale maybe requires the de-emphasizing of the Buddhist dimensions or particularly the kind of the 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 role of medical practice as a, as a spiritual path in and of itself mm -hmm. um did you feel like that that those threads are being lost on the other hand you have popularizers right people like Dr. Nita who you know have large audiences among Western practitioners of Soa Rigpa and Western practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism that are kind of rediscovering these connections. I'm, I'm wondering if you see this as a positive trend or maybe a problematic trend or, or how, do you, how you read that as a scholar. I, I think the, the, the temptation would be to use this sort of modernization model where Tibetan medicine becomes disenchanted, right? To use a Weberian term that might be relevant here. But I, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, actually. One thing to keep in mind is... Tibetan medicine requires many different facets. I, I'm reminded of the, the Aurora group in Sining. They have a pharmaceutical factory where they produce medicines. They have an enormous museum where they kind of tell the story of Tibetan medicine. They have a Tibetan hospital in Sining. This is all in Sining. And uh, they have a medical school where they, they train physicians in Tibetan medicine and teach what we might say a more practical or even academic approach to Tibetan medicine. So across all of these institutions, there's so many facets to 
what we might call that larger umbrella of Tibetan medicine. I think on the pharmaceutical side, it's big business, right? It's big money. Again, the Radamid project explored this in, in, in depth and in detail. That does not mean to say that the practice of Tibetan medicine itself must be business, right? The, I think the production of the medicine and the actual prescription is, is rather different. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of a a physician who works in Northern Virginia named Nima Namseling. My, my parents go to see her. I'll save you all of the details, but they've been sick. You know, fortunately, they're not sick in any major way these days. But part of that is because of Dr. Nima. She's really helped them a lot. She gets her medicines mostly from the Mensikong in India, which I don't know quite as well as these groups in China, but I, I imagine there's a parallel situation there where they're producing as a part of this larger global economy. Um, so she, of course, is part of that too. But at the same time, she she's kind, selfless, open to conversation, full of advice and care. And when you go into her small practice in her basement in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, there's an enormous image of the Medicine Buddha. There are statues and Tonka paintings and traditional Tibetan books. So to say that those have somehow become peripheral, I think would also kind of miss the point. So I guess it's all just to say, much like this chapter in the four tantras i've been discussing in some depth in which janet gyatso discusses in even more depth in her book just as eight nine hundred years ago there were these different motivations for the practice of medicine some of which might be more let's say soteriological and might lead to some kind of awakening enlightenment um others are business others are worldly and and i think that's just the fact of medicine isn't it right we we can do it to make money, to improve our own status in life for many other different reasons. But at the same time, we can also practice medicine to help relieve the suffering of other beings. And I, I think regardless of whether you're doing Tibetan medicine or any kind of medicine, there, there is something inherently transcendent about that. Yeah, I like how that kind of brings us back full circle to when we were talking about the various definitions of Buddhist medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think what you just said is some medicines can be Buddhist because they're part of a long tradition that is integrated with Buddhism some way, but can be practiced in very modern, very scientific, maybe very capitalist kinds of ways and still be Buddhist medicine, whereas other kinds of medicine perhaps don't have such a long tradition within the Buddhist world, but yet they're being done for the benefit of alleviating suffering of sentient beings, right? Like I'm thinking of maybe like a surgeon doing a knee replacement and, you know, a, but is doing that as the enactment of their bodhisattva vows. And this is the the right livelihood that they've dedicated their lives to. And this is their, their spiritual practice every day at work. We can see both of those as being part of something that we might call Buddhist medicine. It also reminds me a little bit of before we started recording, you were talking about Max Weber, who you just mentioned, and how you're teaching about his 1905 book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And maybe this is a good place to bring in Weber's argument and in contrast with some of the things that we were just talking about, about the motivation to alleviate the suffering of all beings. I don't know. Do you want to say anything about that? Sure, absolutely. The Weber piece comes in. He, he argues for a worldly asceticism which seems almost self-contradictory at first, but it's, it's this idea that we might 
work and work and work and work and work and make as much money as we can, but then not indulge in that money, but just reinvest that money into our own enterprise or into this larger capitalistic machine somehow where the goal is money, pure and simple. And in Tibetan medicine, we see another model. It, it's not about a bottomless pit of success, of money, of fame. I feel like I like this addition that we're bringing in here. I think it's an important yeah, part of Tibetan medicine is th this very specific chapter. It's one of the most interesting and important chapters in the four tantras. And for the reasons we're discussing, it really it ties together kind of loose threads from all the rest of Tibetan medicine, Buddhist medicine, and creates a more coherent idea where you can practice medicine in a worldly way and that's okay. You can practice medicine in a compassionate way, and that's better. But this best way is to do it in a tantric way, and that will lead to full enlightenment. I, I think that's a very important message to, to add to the record. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful sentiment. So, Bill, are there, are there three ways of practicing being a professor? Can you be a professor in those three ways? <laughs> I mean, you yeah. certainly can can be a professor with with or without compassion. I mean, that's <laughs> I know examples of both, but can professorhood lead to Buddhahood? I don't know. Well, I, I, I remember, I think it was somebody else quoting Talal Asad. I don't remember precisely who it was, but what Asad said is one of the greatest dangers to our profession as professors and higher education in general is professionalism, is this idea of kind of phoning it in and just seeing it as a job and just kind of doing it to get your salary. And we can do so much more, right? If, if we really think about the capacity of the professor to maybe even transform the way students look at the world, give them tools to shape their own worlds. And um, the really ambitious among us might even reach beyond the ivory tower, right? And have some impact on, on the world at large. But I haven't gotten tenured yet. So I'm still, I'm still thinking about how I'm going I'm to move in that direction one day. Well, yeah, these are all topics that are really uh, very alive for me. So I'm glad that you're mentioning all of them. Well, of course, the podcast is a, is a nice way to reach more broadly. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be able to do that. We're, um... Yeah. Yeah. I, podcasts are doing some of the most exciting intellectual work these days. I, I think there's something about the medium that attracts creativity and a new approach to communication and to knowledge. It's just an exciting world to engage with. Yeah, well, I, I'm certainly a big fan of of podcasts and I've learned a lot myself over the years. So yeah, yeah, that's one of the reasons I, I'm deciding to jump in. So Bill, we've covered a lot of ground here, some pretty academic topics and so forth. And I, I'm wondering if we can like zoom out to the big picture and just kind of ask you for somebody who isn't immersed in the scholarship that you and I are and that isn't as knowledgeable about these approaches. What's the big takeaway? Why should they care about the kind of work that that we scholars are doing in this area? Or another way to say it, what are you trying to get across with your career? And why does this matter to the world? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the big question, isn't it? And one set of terminology that is appropriate for conversations we've been having is this idea of what does the tradition say? What does history say, right? What really happened in the past versus how traditions present themselves. As a scholar, I've learned how to read these old books and kind of figure out how the tradition presents itself. I've also learned tools about how to triangulate sources and 
check between Tibetan and Chinese sources to learn about what really happened in the past. But the third piece that really I think scholarship must have is who cares, right, is what you just asked, is why does this matter? Those first two pieces are so difficult to really understand what a text says and then really what is to really understand the historical context for, for that tradition. It's so difficult just to do that. To expect this third piece is really asking a lot of scholars. So I, my heart goes out to those who don't have time or space or ability to kind of get to this third piece. But we must answer this question. So what is my answer to this? I Maybe reimagination is one word for it. I already have reflected on the relationship between magic, religion, science, right? And this is the world of categories in which we exist. But it's not the only way to look at the world. And in fact, by digging into scholastic medical religious traditions of the past, um, that's not the way that these historical agents represented themselves. And to the extent that we can reimagine our worlds within conversation with the worlds of distant past or distant culture or distant geography, we will only gain from that, right? This, this fusion of horizons where our own horizon is somehow different from this other that we're engaging with and then are able to learn and grow and change from that interaction. To me, this is my place. This is the space that I can potentially make contributions. And more specifically, in terms of health, in terms of bodies, in terms of being who we are. And, and more specifically, in a future work, I, I will write about in terms of epidemics, because I think the way that we handled this most recent one could, could use some work. Yeah, I think your students are really lucky to have you. And it sounds like you're an amazing teacher. If you could impart some of this in the classroom through study of Tibetan history and so forth, that's really a great gift that you're giving them. I want to mention another thing that could be a takeaway from your studies, which is saving your friends from trouble and embarrassment. So <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, I'm sure you do. You and I were traveling from a conference in upstate New York back to New York City. And we were on this, was it the Taconic? I don't remember. It was one of these roads that go on and on and on with no services for uh -huh. miles and miles and miles. And we were just chatting about the conference and we were absorbed in our conversation. And suddenly I looked down at the, at the gas meter in my car and I was like, oh my God, we had another colleague in the car with us. And I turned to you guys and was like, we're going to run out of gas. And the way I remember it, you were like, no, we're not. And you chanted a Padmasambhava mantra. And right over the next hill, <laughs> there was the first gas station we'd seen in like three hours of driving. <laughs> At the very least, you got some pretty good mantras out of your studies. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how much credit I can claim for that one then, right? I got to pass it on to Padmasambhava in this case. <laughs> <laughs> so this mantra, Om Ahum, is effectively sonic. And you can find Om Ahum across many different mantras. Vajra Guru is the adamantine teacher. Pema Siddhi Hum, Padma. Sambhava, so the Padma is a reference to him, and Siddhi is, let's say, an attainment, right? It's almost like this, uh, this power that is cultivated in Tantric Buddhism. So Padma Sambhava really represents that power. He, and, and even in kind of a medical context, he can use it to subdue nasty demons who, who cause disease and so forth. 
So you mentioned that you'll be working on epidemics next. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit, a little bit of a preview of that upcoming work. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've published a few pieces already. Maybe I can sort of begin the story by saying you invited me to give a lecture. What was it? Five years ago, maybe? I think 2018, definitely pre-pandemic. And I chose to talk about the, the Black Death in Tibet. It was a very early project. It's something that I didn't even cover in much detail in my dissertation because I just had all this other stuff to do. But I, I was curious about it. It ties in with Padma Samava, who I am very interested in for many reasons. And I thought, okay, this would be a kind of just an interesting lecture for some undergraduates at, at Penn State. So let's let's give it a try. So I, you know, I went down to Abingdon. I talked about the Black Death. I went home. I gave some other versions of this talk at different times. And it was sort of on the back burner. And then we have this global pandemic and everything else got put to the side. And I thought, okay, I must focus on this now because it just felt so important, right? If I really do take my work seriously, take my academic life seriously, this is the space where I stand to make some sort of engagement with the, the current, current moment. And I've published a few short pieces. One was about Padmasambhava in cultural anthropology. Um, a slightly longer translation was in the Asian Medicine Journal. And then the biggest one is called The Princess and the Plague, which came out last year in the Journal of the American Oriental Society. And so that was really my first crack at this deep dive into the bubonic plague in Tibet. It's something, as I've said, I've been interested in. There's been a tiny little bit of scholarship, just little mentions here and there. Um, but especially now, with developments in various labs, I believe one is in uh, the Max Planck Institute, have been producing really amazing work over the last 10 years showing, let's say, archaeological evidence for plague in Europe, for, for old plague outbreaks in Europe. And there even within the last two or three months, there's been evidence from Kyrgyzstan as well, showing pre-Black Death plague pandemics from the early 14th century. So there's this open historical question now, what is the place of Central Eurasia in the Black Death, which has normally been kind of limited to Europe? So I, I would like to join with these really amazing scholars and make some small contribution to explore this question of plague in Tibetan sources. So where can our listeners find out more about your work? I know a lot of times our scholarly publications are behind paywalls and so forth, but do you have a website or other kinds of locations where people can go and find out more? I do have a website. I have a personal website that my younger brother made for me. He, he's good with these sort of things. The wmcgrath.com. Another place is academia.edu. I try to keep that up to date, generally speaking. And yeah, I mean, I, feel free to email me if you're listening to this. If anybody would like to either have a conversation or, or even just learn more, I'd, I'd be happy to, to further that exchange. So please look me up and, and get in touch. Cool. And we'll put that website and some other links in the show notes. So Bill, is there anything that we didn't talk about? Any points that you want to make to leave our listeners with? Any additional information before we close up? No, I think I think we got it. I would just like to express my thanks for being included in this project. And I don't know if this is appropriate, but really specifically to you, Pierce, you've done so much for this field. You've really created a field of 
of Buddhist medicine or Buddhism and medicine, however you want to phrase it. And I will teach this course on Buddhism and medicine, which would just be utterly impossible without your contribution. So I just finished up the syllabus. We haven't actually started that class yet. That'll be next week. And um, almost every week, Pierce's name shows up somewhere. So it's either an edited volume or something that he wrote. Um, the course will cover old history from the time of the Buddha down to the present. So in any case, yeah, this course would not be possible without the work of, of Pierce. And um, this is another piece of this entire world that you've created. And I would really encourage listeners to find the different volumes that have been published and, and do some reading to explore this world that's really been set out for all of us to enjoy. Well, thanks, Bill. I, I, the feeling is entirely mutual. I really have valued our interactions. And I mean, we go back since uh, you were in grad school and uh, I've just learned so much from you over the years. It, you've taught me more about Buddhist medicine in Tibet than anyone else. And sometimes have done that through debating me until I give in. <laughs> also through peer reviewing or reviewing my work and reading things that I've written. And like I said, I couldn't think of anybody better to be the first guest on my podcast. So really appreciate you being here. And thanks for sharing everything that you did with us. My pleasure. That is it for today from us at the Blue Barrel Podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash bluebarrel. Until next time, be happy and be well. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.